Our praise will continue with our scripture, and I invite you to turn to 110. And again, Megan is going to join me as we read the scripture from Revelation together. So I will sing the light print, and again, I invite you to respond with Megan with the dark print. I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in shining robes and held palm branches in their hands. They were shouting with a great roar. Salvation comes from our God, who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living beings, and they fell before the throne, their faces to the ground, and worshiped God and sang. Amen. Blessing and glory, wisdom and thanksgiving, honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. I can talk about being stumped by the sermon this week, about not feeling particularly full of praise or thanksgiving, about recalling with gratitude one of Melanie Neufeld's many gifts to me and to us by way of her love of interplay, the practice of I can talk about and the liberation that I have experienced at other times in my preaching life when I have found it to be challenging to come up with a sermon, the liberation that this format has offered me in those other moments. I can talk about receiving the memory of this format as gift and grace this week. I can talk about making a choice to only address half of our answer to this week's question, why do we worship? To praise and give thanks is the answer that we gleaned from our hymnal voices together. And I can talk about setting praise aside for a whole host of reasons that is a sermon in and of itself and focusing on giving thanks. I can talk about running across a quote from Meister Eckhart in a prayer book this week. If the only prayer you said was thank you, that would be enough. I wonder if he's right. I think he might be. And I wonder what happens when I can't even muster a thank you. And still I find some comfort and a bit of ease with this thought from him. If the only prayer you said was thank you, that would be enough. I can talk about my weekly practice of Friday Sabbath hikes. Many of you know that that is a weekly, mostly weekly practice of mine. And how often, nearly every week, John and I begin with what we call a round of gratitudes. 
one of us will say, should we do a round of gratitudes? Sometimes it's a speed round of gratitudes. I could talk about weeks when I'm not feeling particularly grateful or I'm in a bad mood or I'm just really deeply struggling with a thing and I don't feel like doing a round of gratitudes. I can talk about weeks when I mutter a single word answer through my gritted teeth. Trees. <laughs> Begrudgingly participating, but without my heart in it one tiny bit. I could talk about how even the begrudging, gritted teeth, muttered, grateful words ground me and shape me and shift me in subtle, life-affirming ways. I can talk about how gratitude isn't all at all a feeling, but a practice. A practice that slowly forms and shapes and reshapes us. A practice that slowly grounds and centers and strengthens us. I can talk about being asked many years ago to lead a retreat for the binational organization Mennonite Women about living a life of gratitude. And then reprising some of that material for a retreat right here at Camp Camrick with Washington State Mennonite Women. Some of you were there with me for those days. I titled the four sessions of that retreat series, Gratitude Abundant, Gratitude Grounded, Gratitude Wrestled, and Gratitude Begotten. And I can talk about how Gratitude Wrestled was my favorite because as I shared with retreatants, it would have been disingenuous to plan a series of sessions on the topic of gratitude without addressing the sincere struggles of our lives. I have lived with and loved people struggling with acute, debilitating, and even life-threatening mental illness. And so I don't have the option of sweeping those, that serious suffering under the rug and pretending it doesn't exist. Pretending that a life of gratitude doesn't in some way need to take seriously the presence of suffering in human lives. I don't have that option. And so by extension, neither does any of us. If not us, then someone we love lives with a mental illness, a terminal diagnosis, a chronic condition, family or relational turmoil, crippling poverty, physical, emotional, psychological limitations that impair life. So here's the rub I shared with each one gathered there and here. How do we live gratefully when little to nothing in our lives seems worthy of gratitude? I can talk about a friend who had some pretty clear ideas about what I should not preach in a sermon about gratitude. <laughs> they hate the silver linings approach to life, especially when it's imposed by others. Specifically, their workplace right in this moment is imploring them and their coworkers to focus on the positives after some serious flubs, which seems more propaganda <laughs> and an attempt to sweep genuine problems under the rug rather than gratitude 
inauthentic gratitude, this friend called it. And I can talk about my fear that any one of you would hear me in this sermon imploring you to find the silver lining, to focus on the positives, or even fake it till you make it. I can talk about none of that being true gratitude. I can talk about how gratitude doesn't deny the truth of what is hard, wrong, inequitable, oppressive. That gratitude is not sugar-coated or silver-lined. I can talk about my own struggle to find and to practice gratitude in these days. And this week, my simple existential gratitude, (laughs) this is what I could come up with when I can't come up with anything else. I am grateful that I don't have to decide to breathe. My body simply and reliably breathes for me. And in the cloud of decision fatigue and exhaustion and despair, I'm grateful that I don't need to remember to breathe, that it's not on me. And I can talk about my gratitude that when I do remember to breathe, it feels like grace and gift. I can talk about John's response when I asked him what I should preach on giving thanks, because when I'm really stumped, I often ask John. (laughs) And his answer, something that hadn't occurred to me at all, he said, in these despairing times, people need to hear that it's okay to feel joy. It's okay to feel joy. (laughs) That we're allowed. (laughs) We're allowed even happiness. We're allowed to experience gratitude. We're allowed to not just practice it, but those rare occasional grace-filled moments to feel it. That we need, he said, in our worship and our times collectively together, that we need that more than ever. Not in place of our truth-telling about all that's hard and wrong and inequitable and oppressive in this world, but right alongside it. John wants you and me to know that it's okay to feel joy. (laughs) And I suppose he gives me the words that brush up against praise most directly, it turns out. Why do we worship? To praise and give thanks. Thank you, John. Thank you, God. I can talk about journeying with Jacob, rustling until dawn, demanding a blessing, and walking away with a limp. I can talk about being grateful that I had to preach this morning, (laughs) to push through and find something or some things to say. Which circles me back to our first Sunday in this series. So I can talk about Returning to why do we worship? To gather as community. Because part of what that community offers is organic accountability. Like me needing to find words to preach this morning because you were all showing up 
one way or another and expecting me to have something to say. <laughs> I can talk about my gratitude for our showing up for and with one another. Showing up to preach something. To mulch a yard and paint a shed. Showing up to cook a, new, a meal for new parents and struggling folks to gather with others and attend to our collective resources. Showing up to build a house at Camp Camerick, to engage a Mennonite study on defunding the police. Showing up to mini golf or listen or go on a long walk. Showing up, and we're just gonna have to figure out how to do this well, but I was on the tablet down there, and I confess, completely distracted by the people that are on the screens, showing up to be able to see Grandma Pat rocking her granddaughter Sawyer, talking, seeing her mouth move as she's talking to her brand new granddaughter, showing up to see Madeline joining from her Goshen College dorm room, and Boaz. Big Sib Boaz, right up at the screen, looking around at who else is there, including his friend Madeline and the babies. And now we can't see the babies, but we're going we're gonna to figure out a way, folks. We're going to figure out a way for you in this room. I am grateful that gathering as a community leads me right into that kind of gratitude that I didn't feel the day before. I can talk about how I give thanks for all of that and for all of you. Amen. We will now hear a song of praise, a beloved and familiar song of praise. Praise, I will praise you, Lord. One of the things that occurs to me as we sing this, reflected with Amy earlier this week, that, you know, in weddings, often people think that you say, I do. That's sort of the cultural collective memory is that we say, I do. But that's not what it is in, in the minister's manual. And it's not what it is in most wedding liturgies. It's I will. It's will you take, I will. Not I do, done, over, said, and done with, but I will. I will today. I will tomorrow. I will the day after that. I will. And so I am struck by this hymn and its brilliance. I will Praise you, Lord. I will do it today, and then I will choose to do it again tomorrow, and I will choose to do it again the next day. We may, mouths closed, safely hum along, and Amy suggested you could even hum along in French if you'd like to. <laughs> <laughs> 